0: Alright, so we're in 1 Timothy, the series is called The Good Fight, right? And that's where Paul tells Timothy twice in this letter, Timothy, we have to fight the good fight for the faith. You know, John, uh, Jesus told uh, the his disciples, he was talking about John the Baptist and John being thrown into prison uh, for his ministry and being persecuted and Jesus was making a, a reflection about Christian ministry and he said, Do you know the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and violent men oppose it. So the kingdom of God hardly ever goes forward and progresses and flourishes without opposition. There's always gonna be spiritual opposition. We live here on planet Earth. We live where there's a fallen angel from heaven with all his minions. His name is the devil or Satan and he is trying to thwart the kingdom of God. He's trying to ruin people's lives. Jesus said the thief came to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus said he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And when Jesus gives us this abundant life, he wants us to gather weekly in this assembly like we are right now, and he wants us to learn from him and from his word. And Jesus had 12 apostles. One of them was Paul. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul, in the course of about 12 years, planted churches all over the Roman Mediterranean world, one of those big cities was the city of Ephesus, and Paul, in his missionary journeys, spent a lot of time planning a church in Ephesus. This church was flourishing, but it also had spiritual warfare within the church, right? And you, mer- you remember the parable of Jesus, where he was saying, hey, there was a farm, and he went out and he sowed some wheat, And uh, somebody was watching the weed, and the next thing they notice is along with the wheat, there was this other kind of plant that was growing up around the wheat. In the old King James Version, it's called the tares, but what I would like to call it are the weeds, right? So along with the weeds in the field, they're growing up these weeds, and this guy notices it, and he goes to the owner of the farm, and he says, hey, sir, do you realize there's weeds growing up with the wheat? That's just another reminder as a metaphor that in the church, as the church grows and flourishes, there will be opposition, there will be sin, there will be discipline that has to happen in the church. And Paul is telling Timothy, as I'm making you my apostolic delegate to these churches in Ephesus, you're going to have to straighten out some things that are wrong. And he's going to talk about discipline of elders today. And that's, so that's something that we need to talk about. In, in regard to taking care of god's family so last week we talked about taking care of god's family if we go to the next slide please uh, here we are so uh, we were taking care of god's family last week now we're going to focus on uh elders now here's a question uh it certainly pertains to me and many of uh, other people who are on professional ministry staff and that's the question well what do you, what do we do in the local church do you actually pay church leaders uh, wouldn't it be awesome if everybody was just a volunteer and there was no budget to have to pay staff and everybody just pitched in and did, did their work and could we have church and make it work? I suppose in the, in the theoretical side of things, it's possible. In the practical side of things, Paul says this way. He, he says he recognizes that in every church, there are going to be certain leaders, certain elders who have a special gift for preaching and teaching and leading the church, And those people who dedicate themselves to the leadership of the church, they are to be paid. And the reason they're to be paid is so that they can devote themselves full-time to the work of the ministry. They don't have to spend their time making a living, out doing other things, and then with their leftover time, they get to devote to ministry. They get to devote the best part of their time to ministry. I mean, for me, it's such a privilege. Lisa knows I'm a morning person. So if I had to go and work at, I'll say Burger King or just Whole Foods Market, whatever else I was doing to make a living uh, during the week, spending the best part of my day, my prime time, elsewhere trying to make a living, and then come over and with the leftover time try to uh, lead the church and prepare messages and, and get programming going for the church, it would be really hard. And so Paul says this verse, and I just take it to heart, and it's a good one for me, but it's a good one for all church leaders. It says, elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well. Uh, In another translation, it says, elders who do their work well, especially in the ministry of preaching and teaching, they should be worthy of double honor, double honor. No, not just honor for being an elder or church leader, but a double honor for being such a good church leader or preacher or teacher that they are actually going to be paid for their services, right? So Paul uh, says that, and then, he, and then he uses two verses to back it up. One of them from the book of Deuteronomy in the Law of Moses, where it says, the Scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain, Right, so he quotes from Deuteronomy, and he says, "I want to take you back to the old days in Israel. Uh, In those days, when the harvest happened, and they bring in the grain, it's the 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 grain is still with the chaff, and it has to be separated. And you do that with this big millstone. And so you put an oxen and you attach it to a, a piece of wood, and you have the oxen, you know, walk around all day in a big circle." Uh, and moving the millstone around to grind out the grain. And also the heavy hooves of the oxen would crush the grain and the wheat and separate it from the trough, threshing the grain was was, was what it was called. And the law of Moses said don't muzzle an ox. In other words, don't keep it from eating as it's doing its work. If the oxen is doing all this work, walking around, treading out your grain to get ready for you, you need to feed that oxen. Don't starve the oxen while he's working, right? So there's, there's an a example from the Old Testament. And then this is really cool for me as a student of the Scripture. It says, and in another place, he says, those who work deserve their pay. And I looked it up. Of course, you look at, if you have a study Bible, it will tell you where Paul's, quote, of scripture comes from this particular quote comes from the gospel of luke and in the gospel of luke jesus is sending out the 72 so jesus is out there preaching and teaching and and building the kingdom of god and casting out demons and doing miracles and healing people and then finally jesus who knows that his time on earth is only going to be a short time before the time of his suffering and his crucifixion and his death burial and resurrection and Ultimately, then Jesus ascends into heaven. Jesus says, I got to train up some people because they're going to carry on the work when I leave. And that's why we have a church today, because in every generation, there are men and women who have carried on the ministry and the work of Jesus and to take us to 2019 right here in Sebastopol. So Jesus sends out the 72, and he says, when you go into a community and you go into a house, look for a person of peace in that community, in that village you go to, and if they're willing, you will stay at their house, and they will provide you hospitality, and they will feed you while you're there. And that will be sort of your pay for while you're there doing your ministry in that house. And then Jesus says these words, for the worker deserves his wages. The worker deserves his wages. Now, the reason I say that's so awesome is because I know that this letter from Paul to Timothy was written obviously before Paul died in 67 AD in the city of Rome, uh, being beheaded for being a, uh, an apostle of Christ under Roman persecution. But, but, so a couple years before that happened, he writes Timothy. So let's say Timothy was in about the year 65 AD, and yet Paul and Timothy is quoting from Luke's gospel. And which means that Luke had already written his gospel, he'd published it, and that gospel was now in circulation. So before the destruction of of Jerusalem, before the Roman armies came and destroyed the city and destroyed the temple and took a half a million Jews that they didn't kill, they took them into slavery throughout the Roman Empire. Before that happened, you remember Jesus said, hey, do you see those beautiful stones on that beautiful temple building over there? Not one of those stones is gonna remain on top of the other. And so Jesus, 40 years before that event happened, is predicting that in Luke's gospel in chapter 21. And all the modern scholars, in their skepticism, they like to say, well, that's not a miracle because what happened was Luke waited until after the destruction of Jerusalem, after the year 70, and then he wrote his gospel. And so he wrote his gospel after the fact, saying that Jesus predicted it when in fact it was just after the fact. And what I say is, hey, Paul, five years before the destruction of Jerusalem, is quoting from Luke's gospel. So... I don't hear any rejoicing. I don't expect you to get why that's important, but it's important because it means that Luke wrote his gospel before the destruction of Jerusalem, which means all those miraculous predictions of Jesus that came true are just one more proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. So let that just sit there and ruminate on it, marinate on it, and then let's go get a burger. Okay, so. Here we are, so back now to, to that. Now, Paul's gonna talk about discipline in the church, and he's gonna, he's gonna say uh, that it's appropriate for professional staff positions to receive a salary. So before he gets to the discipline, Paul says it in one more time, and he's talking in 1 Corinthians, and he says, I, I just wanna back it up, what I meant before when I was telling you in 1 Timothy. So he says it now, now Paul's talking to the Corinthians, And he's talking about the rights of an apostle to be supported in the ministry that an apostle has. And Paul, you know, so that's in the first part of chapter 9. You get down to verse 9. He says, he repeats the same quote from Deuteronomy. And he says, for the law of Moses says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And then he he explains it. He says, was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? The answer, rhetorical answer is no. Wasn't he actually speaking to us? And then he says, don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple, right? So those priests who had no land given to them in the allotment for the tribes of Israel, those priests said, you're going to get your living from the offerings and the sacrifices of animals that turn into meat that God's people would be bringing to the temple, your priests are going to get your support and your living off of the offerings of God's people, right? So the priests, they serve in the altar. They get their share of the sacrificial offerings. And then he says in verse 14, and here's the principle. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. And there you have it, the Word of God. Now, moving on to the discipline in the church. Uh, Paul had been pointing out to Timothy lots of times in this letter. You can read it all the way from chapter 1 through chapter 6. He's telling Timothy that the church leaders have to look out for the flock. They have to watch out and care for the flock of God that God made them overseers or elders of. And he says part of the way you protect the flock is you've got to find out where there is false teaching and you've got to put a stop to it because that false teaching is a bad influence on the church. There may have been a, and so what I, th- this is my guess. What's happening in the Ephesian church is Paul says, Timothy, you've got to stop the false teachers. So Timothy points out all this false teaching and these false teachers. And what I think was happening was there was kind of a purge going on. A purge of the false teaching and and the the leaders in the church that were teaching errant doctrine and doctrines of demons, like it says in 1 Timothy 4. And because of this purge, some of the elders who were okay, but maybe were getting associated with the false teachers, they were accusing some of the good leaders and the elders of being part of the bad crowd. And they were trying to get rid of some of the good elders along with the bad elders. And so... Paul gives this warning to Timothy, and and he's saying, hey, if somebody is accused for being an elder, Timothy, you can't just take the testimony of one witness, right? So he says, don't listen to an accusation against an elder unless it's confirmed by two or three witnesses. That echoes a law that's in the law of Moses as well. You You don't put somebody to death based upon he said, she said. There has to be more than one witness to confirm the story of the accuser, right? So, uh, because the idea would be you could have somebody who's disgruntled in the church, somebody's got an ax to grind, they don't like a certain leader, they don't like what he or she said or did, and so they're trying to get rid of them and they bring an accusation against that leader. And Timothy says, before you just take that accusation as if it's true, because it does say in the Proverbs, by the way, you know, one person brings forth an argument and it sounds really good, comma until another one comes to refute it. Right? That was one of those Bible verses that they brought up in these debates. They have these Christian debates, and I ten years ago I was part of these debates between where a uh, person representing the Christian faith would be on one side, the person representing Islamic faith would be on the other side, and they would say, which one is right, you know, Islam or Christianity, because they believe different things. Certainly they believe different things about Jesus. And so the the moderator of the debate came up and he brought in Proverbs 18 and he says, look, one person comes up and presents his case and everybody, as long as you just hear one side, it's like, oh, this guy's genius, he sounds so good, I guess we gotta believe it until another person comes and refutes it or opposes it. So you always want to hear both sides of the stories. You don't just throw out a, a leader unless it is confirmed. So you investigate if there's an accusation against an elder church leader before you just, you know, pronounce judgment and say, get rid of, get rid of the, the bad apple in the, in the bunch. It says, those who sin should be reprimanded in front. And get this, look back to that verse. It says, those who sin to the previous, there you go. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. Here's a question for you. Have you ever seen that happen in a local church? Have you ever been to a church meeting on a Sunday or maybe a Sunday night, congregational meeting, anything, where there was actually a judgment by the church leadership over one of the elders or one of the church leaders who had gone astray, who had abused his authority, who uh, was sinning in some way that was, that was uh, you know, sort of denying the, uh, his rightful place to become a leader because of, of a lifestyle issue or something. Have you ever seen that happen in a local church? i didn't see it happen but this thing happened to me and lisa while we were missionaries in chile and it didn't happen in chile it happened in the united states so it's like well you weren't there yeah but i heard about it so in the early 1990s lisa and i as young adults crazy get this idea we're going to go be missionaries and we're going to go spread the gospel in the country of chile in south america so we're there and when you're in a foreign country and they don't have any Christian radio, they don't have any Christian bookstores, they don't have any TV, they didn't have any internet back then, uh, so you're, you're thinking to yourself, how do you keep yourself fed spiritually? How do you keep yourself strong? How do you, where do you get good doctrine and good Bible teaching? And the answer back in that day was the, quote, tape cassette ministry of Chuck Swindoll and in Insight for Living. Now, You young people, you say, what's a tape cassette? Well, ask your parents, and they'll be able to tell you. But it's basically an ancient recording device that used to work, and now we have other means. Even CDs are becoming a thing of the past now. So anyway, tape cassettes. So we get Insight for Living about once a month. We get these tape cassettes from Chuck Swindoll, and it's usually his messages that he's preaching in his big church, 5,000-member church, First Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton. And beautiful Bible teaching. So we're taking this and, you know, we're sponging it in like, you know, like this is awesome. And then we'd pass it on and we'd take some of the lessons that we were learning from Chuck and we'd pass it on to the Chileans. So we're listening to this and it just so happened one time we got one of these tape cassettes and we're listening to it and it wasn't a normal message. It was Chuck Sundahl saying... um, I'm calling uh, this gathering of church together, and it was on a Sunday morning in his church, and he said, I have some bad news to share with you. I have something that has brought shame upon the Christian faith. It has brought shame upon this church, and we have to call out something that's happened. And he goes on to tell the story, and he was his voice was broken. He was tearful. He was... It, 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 like it, it gutted him just to have to get up there and, and have to share this with the congregation because it was something that didn't happen to the whole congregation, but it happened to part of the church, but it affected the whole church because it was done by a leader, an elder in the church. And what he had to share was there was an elder in the church, and he'd been an elder for 20-some years, and he was a respected elder. And if you looked at this person from the outside, you would say, oh, that's an upstanding Christian, and he's a Christ follower, and he teaches the word, and he's been an elder, and he's worthy of honor and respect here. And Chuck said, and all that was true up until about two weeks ago. When it was discovered that this upstanding, respected elder was involved in the children's ministry of the church, which he had been for years, and some of the children who had grown up came forward and said, this man abused me in this church, in this ministry, in the Sunday school classes when they were a part of it. And nobody knew about it, and it was hidden, and it was only some brave children that were growing up and now had the courage to share what had happened to them, brought it forth to Chuck and to the rest of the church leadership and said, this happened to me, this was wrong, this person is still an elder here in the church, what are you going to do about it? And Chuck said, we had to go to that elder and we had to confront him with his sin And we had to remove him from leadership. And I am here uh, today, not pridefully, but humbly, humbly because this has brought shame upon our church. And I wish it didn't happen, but it happened. And it's not okay to throw it under the rug. It's not okay to pretend it's just a little side issue and it doesn't mean the ministry of the church. And I understand that there's gonna be fallout in the church, but he said, we have to do what the scripture says. And the scripture says, if if there's an elder who has sinned in a level like this that affects the health of the body of christ and has injured people in the ministry of the church that sin that person has to be called out and reprimanded in front of the whole church and he said this will serve as a strong warning to others and he quoted that passage and he did the right thing and you know what i thought what would happen was wow there are going to be people that are so offended in that church that they're going to hear about that elder's abuse of those kids in that children's ministry, and they're going to walk away, and they're going to say, I never want to see that church again. And you know what? It didn't happen. It didn't happen because the people respected Chuck and the leadership of the church for being honest and confessing openly what had happened in the church and asking for the church's forgiveness and disciplining the wayward elder. Now, that happened 20-some years ago in a church in Fullerton. I want to tell you about two other stories that just happened recently, people that I don't know, but people that I've sat under their teaching, both live and on video, and I had a high respect for both of these men. Both of them were big-time pastors in the city of Chicago, and both of them were removed as senior pastors of their churches. The first one was a a church that is so well-known in America, started in 1975 by a pastor. The founding pastor's name is Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels was a pastor of, of Willow Creek Community Church in the Chicago area. And some women had come forward over the years and said that there was some sexual misconduct on the part of Bill Hybels toward them in private moments during the course of their ministry in the 1980s and the 1990s. And they, they, some of the women had brought it up to the church leadership and they were uh, really not listened to, not, it didn't go anywhere. They said, I'm so sorry if this happened to you, but they didn't really do anything about it. Why? Because the church was flourishing and Bill Hybel's leadership was amazing and, and the kingdom of God was growing. So we're not going you know, to upset the apple cart. And some of the leaders of that church quashed it for years. And it was, I think, the Me Too movement in Hollywood may have prompted some of this, but they finally came out and said, we're not going to be silent anymore. This is wrong. And a couple of years ago, Bill Hybels was removed as the senior pastor of that church for his sin and for his misconduct. So there's one example. The other example just happened in February of this year. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, we're starting up life groups again, September 15th, and during that week, and we're going to have our Tuesday night men's group again at Jim Tisthammer's house if you men want to join us. Last fall, I was doing a, a, leadership, a, a series in a Bible study called Act Like Men, and it was written by this pastor of this other big church in Chicago, and it was called Harvest Bible Chapel. And that pastor, it was discovered, was taking some of the church money, and he was the founding pastor, and this was a 12,000-member church, so he was influential, and they even had a plane, and I don't know how they got an airplane for the church, but he was flying around the country and doing different ministry events and stuff like that. But it was discovered that much of what would have been personal, should have been personal expenses, it was just flagrant use of the church monies for their own uh, for the for the founding pastor and his wife and their immediate family and they were spending all kinds of money on themselves and stuff like that and just saying it was church expenses and charging it to the church and finally somebody spoke up and you know was a whistleblower and they said this is wrong this can't be right and they they went to the church leadership and the and the church leadership finally did the right thing and they confronted the pastor and they re, and he I don't know what he said but they removed him from the senior pastor office. I have no idea what he's doing today and I have no idea what Harvest Bible Church is doing today. The only thing I can say is I find, you know, sometimes the church is guilty when there's a high profile, highly influential leader That when some bad sin is discovered, instead of confronting it, instead of righting the wrong, instead of bringing discipline to that leadership and maintaining the integrity of the church, they'll kind of poo-poo it away and say it wasn't as bad as you think and try to silence the accuser and, and maybe even go after the accuser and say, you just got an axe to grind against this guy. Sometimes that happens and it's wrong. If there's really sin happening and wrong happening, it needs to be called out, it needs to be confronted, and the church needs, then discipline needs to happen, not for the purpose of destroying somebody, for the purpose of, of that person repenting and confessing and turning away from that sin so that eventually there could be some kind of restoration, That's that's the goal of all church discipline. The goal is restoration. The goal isn't to shame somebody and say, get out of here. You know, you don't deserve to be here anymore. That's not what Christ is talking about. But we do discipline for the sake of the health of the body and the church restoration. So that's Paul's exhortation to Timothy. I mean, he says it, and he he says, uh, you got to do it in front of the church. And then he says, and I'm giving this to you as a solemn warning, Timothy, this is what you need to do. Now I want to jump down to verse 23 because this is one of those passages in the Bible in the New Testament where it talks about drinking, and it talks about wine, and it talks about alcohol. And I said, you can't live in Sonoma County and not talk about this verse. So 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. Can we get there? Can we find that verse? In verse 23. And Paul is talking to Timothy, and it was in the context of disciplining these church elders who have gone astray. But then Paul says, kind of as a sidebar to Timothy, he says, hey, Timothy, I I know you've got some health issues. You've got some stomach problems. So Paul says to Timothy, don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often, right? So you ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach. So, First question is, the word right before wine that is an adjective that describes the volume and the amount of wine to be drunk, Uh, what is that word right before wine? Little, right? So does that imply a bottle or two bottles or a big Ernest and Julio gallon jug? No, I don't think it implies any of that thing. Uh, You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. And by the way, in the first century, my research has told me this, in the first century, uh, people uh, did drink wine with most every meal. One of the reasons they drank wine is because wine had some disinfecting properties that would decontaminate some of the bad water that they had. But usually the mixture was either one part wine to one part water or one part wine to two parts water. So it would take a lot more than a glass of wine to make somebody drunk, right? So he says, take a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. Now, I went on the winegrowers.com or some kind of website like that and, and they were talking about wine. They were talking about the health benefits of wine. And I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you can almost get healthy drinking wine, <laughs> according to what they say. So uh, look what they say. I mean, why? if, and uh, it says, point out, here's the health benefits. Uh, wine has antioxidants, and it does. Wine boosts the immune system. Wine increases bone density. Helps you with o- my osteoporosis, you know, start drinking. So number four, it reduces the risk of stroke. It reduces the risk of heart disease. It lowers cholesterol. I can get rid of my statin drug. I just start guzzling wine. So um, I, I have cholesterol issues. So it lowers cholesterol. And then number seven, it can reduce the risk of type two diabetes. So you see all those health benefits and you're like, wow, this is awesome. Um, and you might even get the impression, like we Americans do, this is what we do with things. So if, if Paul says drink a little wine for your stomach's sake, and winegrowers.com say that here's all the health benefits of drinking wine, if drinking a little wine is good, then drinking even more wine is better, right? Uh, but that's not uh, actually true, and, we ha- and even the wine growers say you ought to drink in moderation, Now, they define moderation, and they have sort of a a stake in the game, right? They got some skin in the game by saying this. They define moderation as three drinks a day, three drinks a day or less. That's moderation, right? It does, if you have one drink, if you have one glass of wine, one shot of hard liquor, or one beer, it takes your body two hours to metabolize that because it goes into your body as a depressant. it, It... your liver receives the alcohol as a poison as a mild poison, and it takes two hours to metabolize it. So um, where does the scripture say anything else about drinking? Do you, can you recall any other place in the scripture where it talks about the benefits of being drunk or the, the command to go thou and intoxicate? No, it, it isn't. What? what it does say in ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 paul's talking uh, about being filled with the holy spirit and being filled with the holy spirit means that you are influenced by the holy spirit now uh, on a good note if you're influenced by the holy spirit and i have felt his presence in my life sometimes when you're filled with the holy spirit you love everybody you see everybody as god's precious child You see the world as I, the the world is in need of Jesus and I need to tell them about Jesus and I want to share God's love with you, but I do it with joy and love and peace. I'm not doing it because I'm angry or I just, you know. So when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a wonderful thing. And Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. But you cannot be filled with the Holy Spirit and some other mind-altering substance at the same time. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So uh, I do think in summary that that Paul says it's okay, especially for health reasons. Um, There was a pastor... In a a big church in Southern California, his wife had some health issue, and the doctor, kid you not, the doctor prescribed to her, maybe you've had this prescribed to you, the doctor prescribed to her, you should have a glass of red wine, and it wasn't white, wine because I guess there's other properties in red wine, rivasterol or something like that, that is in red wine that makes it healthier for her heart condition, and the doctor says, you should have a glass of red wine before you go to bed at night and so she said honey i can't believe the doctors prescribing this her dad her dad her dad, her husband is the senior pastor of the church and so he was trying to be above reproach. He went to the elders of his church and he said, look, this is what the doctor's prescribing for my wife. What do you guys think about it? And the elder said, hey, if that's the prescription and your wife is gonna say, she's gonna have one glass of red wine at night before she goes to bed and it's for her health and it's prescribed by a doctor, it's okay with us. Because there didn't wanna be a rumor flying around that the pastor's wife is knocking back the bottle at night on a regular basis. So and and he so they actually announced it to the church and the church clapped for the wife and it was a beautiful thing. So but again, so is wine is drinking wine permissible? Of course. Moderation recommended? Yes. Right? Total abstinence is not required, but watch out because this is what we do and this is what addictive personalities do. If a little is good, then a lot more is even better. And that's not true in this case. Watch out for drunkenness and addiction. It might be permissible, but it's not always beneficial. Here's another question. If Jesus served wine at the Passover meal, and we believe that that's what they did because that was the custom of the day, to serve wine with the bread and the Passover meal, if we're celebrating communion and Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, then why don't we serve wine here at church? That's what they did. We've got to follow their example, right? Why don't we serve wine here at church? I remember being at the other church, and I was like 20 years old, getting ready for my 21st birthday, right? So maybe you could cross the line in in alcohol or whatever. Thinking about it anyway, and uh, the question did come up at that church, and they said, Pastor Merrill, he said, why don't we serve wine here at the church when we serve communion, like Jesus did in the Passover meal? And Ben Merrill said, do you know any alcoholics? And the guy said, no. And he says, well, I know a lot of alcoholics. And I know a lot of alcoholics. If they put that real wine to their lips when they're having communion, that might be a real trigger for them to, get to go off the wagon, fall off the wagon and relapse into their alcoholism. So we're not gonna serve alcohol. We're not gonna serve wine. We're gonna serve grape juice. And I hope you're okay with grape juice, which by the way, has the same health benefits as wine. Grape juice and so do eating grapes. So you don't have to have the wine to have that. So you say, oh, I want all those health benefits. Good, go out and buy some grapes and eat some grapes. They're they're in season right now. Wine could be advisable for health conditions, but done in moderation. So to sum up today, what have we learned today? Well, we've learned that there there are leaders that God appoints in the church. And the leaders are qualified to be leaders because they're supposed to have the highest moral standards. They're supposed to be role models for the rest of the congregation for this is how to live the Christian life. They're supposed to be somebody you could imitate. Like Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Every time I read that verse, I go, why did you say that? Because for church leaders, you're saying, people are what? Well, people watching you. And like we said a couple weeks ago, people would rather see a sermon than listen to a sermon, right? So the the leaders are the role models for the church. And when the leaders mess up and if they abuse their authority... If they abuse their power and they sin and they go astray and it, it's affecting not just them, it's affecting the health of the church, they need to be called out. They need to be reprimanded publicly and they needed to be disciplined, not for the purpose of harming them or kicking them out, but for the purpose of restoring them to the church body. Because every one of us are going to mess up at some time. And I want to, I want this church to be, if we're going to err, let's err on the side of Grace right? Let's try to be a church that restores. It says if somebody is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore that person gently, watching out for yourself that you don't fall into the same temptation. So we need to be a church known for our grace, our love, our restoration, but also that we maintain our moral standards. We're not just going to throw sin under the rug. We have to deal with it sometimes in the church, and also the, the deal about wine it's permissible for christ followers to drink a moderate amount of alcohol provided that they don't become intoxicated and i'll say i'll say something else provided also that 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 while doing that they're not causing somebody else in their faith to stumble if i'm out with an alcoholic and we've got alcoholics in our family we're out with an we're we're out with friends and I, and I know them to be practicing alcoholics. One of, my brother-in-law, God bless him, I love this guy. He's been, he's been dry, uh, alcohol-free in his life after being enslaved to it most of his adult life. He's been alcohol-free for 11 years. Do you think, do you think that I'm gonna order some kind of alcohol in his presence while we're out together. That's oh, you got freedom in Christ, and you only have one drink and you're not getting drunk and moderation, it's still okay. It's permissible. Yeah, it might be it might be permissible, but it's not right in that moment. Because I don't have the right to cause him to stumble. So we're always looking out. We have to look out for each other. It's not just my own freedom, it's it's or your own freedom, it's how that freedom affects other people. Amen. Come on up, John. By the way, John is not just gonna be leading the next song. He's gonna be singing and strumming over at the park across the street. So random songs, he says. Uh, He's even told me some of them have Christian lyrics. So that's a good thing. Let's pray. God, I pray that, that we would be the kind of church filled with the Holy Spirit, not drunk with wine. Lord, I pray that we'd be kind of the kind of church that would uh, uplift the highest moral standards, that we would be known for our love and our grace and our mercy and our values, that when people see us collectively as this local congregation, this local body of Christ, Lord, they would see us as reflective and representing you to the community. You told us, you said, you are uh, the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So, Lord, help us to shine as your light, as your representatives to a world that desperately needs to know that there's a God who loves them and there's a Savior who gave his life for them. Help us to reflect that kind of love, especially, Lord, when we're across the street, when we run into people that maybe we don't know, never met before, but they are people that you made in your image and you want them to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. Help us to reflect you. In your name we pray. Amen.